Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week of Colorism Healing with yours truly, Dr. Sarah Webb. I almost tried to number the week, but it's been so many weeks I have lost count. (laughs) So if you've been paying attention, I am talking about colorism in Hollywood this week. I realize I didn't make as formal or official of announcement as I usually do. But my post on Saturday, which was a reel repurposed from TikTok, shh, don't tell Facebook or Instagram, (laughs) but it was a reel um, slash TikTok that I made about the Harder They Fall movie, particularly the casting of Stagecoach Mary. And so that really prompted me this week to go ahead and do a live officially dedicated to colorism in Hollywood movies. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Before I jump in, I'm going to give people some time to join the conversation. And those who are here, please say hello. Let me know where you're watching from in the world today. And let me know how you're feeling. What's the weather like? You know, are you, depending on what where you are in the world, you might be getting ready for bed. You might be just getting off work. So let me know how's it, how it's going. Um... I do have a few announcements. I forgot. I was thinking about things I wanted to talk about (laughs) and I forgot. So I'll have to start writing things down. I used to like make handwritten notes about announcements that I had. I will say though that I got a trim a couple of weeks ago and I am just loving what it has done to my hair. Um, I liked my hair before, but like now that I got it professionally trimmed, I'm like, wow, it's like really cuter, even cuter than before. So there's that. Um, also the books, I haven't been talking much about the anthology for the colorism healing writing contest, partly because I've been really busy, but if you have ordered a book or if you are one of the authors who participated in the contest, you should have received your copy unless you are an international author or an international client. Those books take longer. And in some instances, there are customs regulations that might prevent me from mailing the book. So we'll have to order it from the um, marketplace in your particular country. So check in with me, send me an email if you haven't received your book yet, whether you get a free author's copy or whether you purchased copies for those of you who have not gotten a book or have not purchased one, they are available for sale on the website as well as other online retailers and sellers. So if you have like a Prime account or something you want to use to order it, feel free to do that. Um, anything else I need to talk about in terms of announcements? Okay, I think I'm good on announcements for now. <laughs> and next time I'll remember to take notes. So let's see who's tuning in. If you are just tuning in, the topic is colorism in Hollywood movies sparked by the egregious casting of Stagecoach Mary in the Netflix film, The Harder They Fall. Yeah. All right. Lucid Lose. Hey, Lucid Lose. I always enjoy having you in the discussions. Um, Vanessa Beth Ely from Vancouver. Hi from Vancouver. Hello from Mozambique. Hi from Mozambique with two hearts. And this is Aline Nobri. 
Um, Zeratanya1980 says, hi, watching in Kent, UK. It's cold. <laughs> it's cooling, getting cooler down here in Texas, but definitely not cold yet. Um, Lucid Low says, love the earrings. Thank you. I bought them at a vendor over the weekend. There was um, a woman selling things, earrings, purses, and I, I like color. I like earrings, so I bought things from her. <laughs> um, Fro is popping. Vanessa Beth Ely, thank you. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get my hair trimmed regularly now. <laughs> uh, let's see. Hey, Natasha, how's it going? Um, Ray in Atlanta, good to see you always. Sarah Bestwill, how you doing? From sunny and warm Boston. Wow, okay. I don't know if, if you've ever reported that Boston was sunny. So congrats on having a sunny day in Boston. I feel like you usually say it's cold or cloudy or rainy or something. So that's great. Um, dropped Jim. Hello from Houston. I like your screen name too. Dropped Jim. Dropping gems. Uh, black looks good on you too. Thank you. I went through a phase recently where I was wearing like all black. And so this shirt is like a carryover from that wardrobe period. Um, but I, I like black and it matches the hair. See? So, okay. Um, Elevated Conjure. Hello. What's up? Tuning in from Maryland. It's a great day. Hey, Jendale Crutch. So I kind of want to talk about the current recent news, the recent developments in Hollywood that have inspired this conversation on colorism in Hollywood movies. And then I want to sort of zoom out and talk about colorism in general, right? So I'm gonna start explaining why the Stagecoach Mary casting and The Heart of They Fall is so problematic, is an instance in and of itself of a pattern of colorism. Um, but then I also want to kind of take, give you some key takeaways that can apply to any movie, to any film, right? And so my goal, because again, these tend to run long if I don't limit or narrow the scope. My goal is to talk about how colorism shows up in Hollywood, right? So unfortunately, I won't be talking about solutions to that today. You have to stick around and stay tuned for the more strategic, what do we do about it as audience members? What do we do about it as creative people or as actors and actresses? Um, for right now, though, I think it's important because when I talk about examples of things I see in terms of colorism, there's always one or two people who re reply in the comments like, whoa, I didn't even notice that, right? I remember talking um, about colorism and Queen Sugar with regards to the women that Ralph Angel dated or made it with or whatever. And someone was like, you know what? I didn't even realize that. I didn't even spot that, right? And so I think even people who are aware of the issue of colorism might take for granted all of the ways that it's obvious in movies, right? In, in media in general. So I really wanna give people the tools to analyze the media that they consume and really be more consciously aware of when they're receiving colorist messages. Be consciously aware of when you might be receiving a narrative or consuming a narrative that's harmful towards darker skinned people, especially darker skinned women. Because I think oftentimes we're so used to seeing such narratives, we're, we're so used to seeing certain types of erasure, and we're so used to seeing certain representations and certain depictions that we kind of consume it unconsciously. We consume things uncritically. And so the goal here is to give people critical language and like a um, critical thinking framework for consuming 
any movie or any TV show. Um, so in terms of The Harder They Fall, if you don't know, it's a movie that's coming out on Netflix. It was produced by Jay-Z, um, who is has his own rep reputation of colorism, right? Has his own reputation of not um, seeing or valuing darker skinned black women, right? And so that is already a red flag. When we talk about addressing colorism in the media as, well, we need more black content creators. We need more black producers. We need more black directors and filmmakers. I want to caution people about thinking that just because black people make it, that it won't be colorist because black people made this film. The director was a dark skinned black man, right? Jay-Z is a producer, a black man, right? And even though he might not have had been hands-on in the crafting and the art and directing of the film, his opinion, his direction, the buck stopped with him as the, the money giver, right? And so if the producer doesn't approve of something, if the producer dislikes something, because they control the budget, right? Like they can stop things. Um, but also, again, the director of the film, I don't know who their casting director was per se, but again, the casting director doesn't have the final say. The casting director still has to have this approved and okayed by the director and the producer as well. And I, transparency, I don't work in Hollywood, never worked in Hollywood, okay? Um, I'm just picking up these things in my study of colorism in the media, right? So that's how I know the little tiny bit that I do know. Um, and so part of what I was saying, and I mentioned this in the TikTok video, is that it's really not, um, the, the, this is an instance of how black men in particular in the media continue to betray dark-skinned black women, right? It's a betrayal. And I said this yesterday, my sister thought it was cute. I said, this portrayal of Stagecoach Mary is a betrayal, not only to dark-skinned women in general, but it's a betrayal to Stagecoach Mary. It's a betrayal of her legacy and of the life of the things she had to endure as a dark skinned woman born into slavery in the United States. It's like egregiously a betrayal to cast someone who in many ways represents the exact opposite of what stage coach Mary's life was about and what it impacted her. And so when I say that, yes, the actress that they chose, Zazie Beetz, is the exact opposite of what we see in Stagecoach Mary because she's light skin. She has light skin. That's one, the first element. The second element is that she is biracial, right? And so I'm putting those two things separately because one, people in the comments, and I, I agree with this, right? Like, yes, biracial women continue to be cast in roles portraying women who are not supposed to be biracial, right? But also, it's not just her mixedness as an actress. It's not just Zazie Bates's, Beetz's mixedness. It's that she's a light-skinned mixed person. Because there are mixed people who have my complexion. There are biracial people who are dark. There are biracial people who have darker skin tones, who have kinkier hair textures. And so it's not just that they're casting biracial women they're casting a particular kind of biracial woman. They continue to cast the lightest skin biracial woman with the straighter hair textures. Um, I am personally related to biracial people. They have, their mother is black, my cousins, and their fathers are non-black. And yet their skin tone is like mine. 
And so, yes, the conversation around mixed race identity is important. But when we talk about colorism, that's a factor, but it's not even, again, the ultimate goal, right? Because it's always the light-skinned mixed people. They have mixed biracial people who don't read or present as biracial or mixed. And so we also have to remember that in talking about the erasure of non-mixed black women, it's an erasure by women who have a certain racially ambiguous look, right? Because it's one thing to say, oh, you're casting a biracial woman to play a, a, a black woman who's not mixed race or biracial, but she at least looks like that person, right? There are mixed race people who look like Queen Latifah, who look like Mary J. Blige, right? And so you might be able to justify casting a biracial woman as Mary J. Blige if that biracial woman actually looked dead on to Mary J. Blige. But what we're seeing here in this instance, which is just one case amongst many countless films and times when this happens, is that the person is both biracial and lighter skinned. And then we talk about featurism and texturism as well. So Zazie Bates, as a light skinned biracial woman, also has narrower features, a narrow nose. The, uh, the third thing, so light skinned biracial, she's also German. I made the error of saying she was British. Someone corrected me on TikTok and it was like, oh, she's actually of German descent. Okay, and so she's playing a person who was, um, born into slavery in the United States. And so this is not exactly related to colorism, but in terms of this specific portrayal of this historic figure, I want to highlight and really lay out for y'all how egregious this casting was, like just how egregious it actually was. And that the actress they chose to portray this story, again, has a extremely different positionality and experience than the person they're playing. So not being a descendant, and I'm, I know people are like anti-ADOS or whatever, but I'm saying this because it does matter. So not being a descendant of slavery. And the stagecoach Mary wasn't just a descendant of slavery. The woman was born into slavery, right? We're not talking about playing me, right? Somebody choosing to play me, a biracial non-US person playing me, because I didn't actually experience slavery. My ancestors did. But you're portraying someone who actually was born into slavery in the United States, okay? Um, and then one that a lot of people note, Stagecoach Mary was a heftier woman. Zazie Beetz is extremely thin. So the, we're talking about Hollywood beauty standards in general. Um, but the fact that Again, they had the opportunity to cast women. They had the opportunity to hire actresses that so rarely get to play principal roles in films. And so again, the person that they chose to portray Stagecoach Mary is opposite to her in many ways. The first being light-skinned, second being biracial, third being um, German, the fourth being skinny, and then the fifth thing is that she is much younger. So Stagecoach Mary was about 60 years old when she became Stagecoach Mary. She didn't earn that title until she was in her 60s, right? And so people have been talking about folks who could, who could have played her instead. It's important to also name like older dark-skinned black actresses. Somebody talked about Whoopi Goldberg or Viola Davis, right? But even with that, right, we can say, you know, if, if one of those identity characteristics is a little off, right? So maybe we had a person that fit all four criteria and they were just like short on one, right? Maybe we can say 
this is an instance where, you know, yes, it was a younger actress, but they were just like her in every other way. This is the, this is the opposite in every way. <laughs> the opposite in every way, right? And so it's particularly egregious, particularly egregious in this instance. Um, and people have been comparing this to Zoe Zaldana's casting in Nina Simone. And you would think that after Zoe Zaldana apparently cried and saying how she wished she never took the role, you would think that actresses would, would kind of take heed, would be more cautious in accepting these roles, right? But it's interesting how in the Nina movie, in Nina Simone movie with Zoe Zaldana, the filmmakers had, it was a twisted way that they did it, but they felt like the way the actress looked mattered because they bothered, they bothered to put Zoe Zaldana in blackface. They bothered to give her a prosthetic nose to make her features more like Nina Simone's, right? So there's this weird, very twisted acknowledgement that looking like the character you're portraying matters. And yet, instead of just hiring someone who already looked like that, they gave this very offensive like makeup for Zoe Zaldana. In this instance, though, the filmmakers don't even care. They're like, you don't have to look anything like her. You don't have to in any way represent who she was. And let me be clear, being a dark-skinned woman who was born into slavery impacts your experiences during slavery. And stage, if you go Google the pictures. Stagecoach Mary was, was very dark-skinned, okay? Um, and even after the abolition of slavery, being her color gave her extremely different experiences than someone who would have been lighter skinned or biracial. And so her persona, her legacy, what she did, how she moved through the world, right? Her personality development, all of that was influenced by those other identity categories of being dark skinned, of being black, of being born into slavery, right? And so I'm mad, <laughs> mad about this movie. <laughs> Um, the other thing I'll say is that Stagecoach Mary was no, well known for wearing men's clothing, right? Like that was part of her legacy. Like, oh, you know, she's this like tough woman. She like wears men's clothing because it, you know, is part of her toughness and having to endure um, that era as a woman, right? Out in the world delivering mail. And so the, there's one particular scene that I used in my reel where the actress in the film is wearing a corset. And so there have been various commentaries about just corsets in general in terms of um, it, it was actually a form of like underwear or lingerie during its time. It was an undergarment and not actual clothing. Um, but it's very interesting, again, like what these black male filmmakers are trying to do with this particular role is appeal to the colorist preferences of other people like them, right? Like they are purposely being colorist and misogynoir and like sexist with this role in particular. Um, and then I'm, I'm gonna read y'all's comments in a second, I promise, but I just had so much to say. <laughs> the other thing is that one of the actors in the film, you know, responded to a question in an interview about the Zazie Bates beats char character and casting. And he talked about how he just wants to see unity and how he, he wonders how we can be more united and you know what we can do to start seeing unity amongst all of us. And I was like, being colorist ain't the way to do it, 
one. Secondly, you'll notice, because I looked up the cast and all of the men are dark skin. So if you want to say, oh, well, we're doing a colorblind casting and none of the characters' skin tone matters, we're just going to like, you know, kind of like a Hamilton type of casting, which people say is also colorist, but like, we're going to just, for the, for, to make a point to talk about unity and like, you know, make a commentary on race, we're going to like do random casting for everybody, right? then maybe we would be having a different discussion. But it's easy for that male actor to trivialize the casting of Stagecoach Mary because the, the leading men are very dark-skinned and all of them are dark-skinned. They're not like, they're, they didn't pick Jesse Williams or Terrence Howard for this movie to play those, the male roles, right? And so again, for black actresses, for female actresses in particular, colorism impacts their careers. Dark-skinned men in Hollywood get cast all the time for various roles. And so, yes, this is a particularly egregious phenomenon for its impact on Black African-American women in particular. Woo, okay. I saw a lot of comments coming through. Um, let's see. Thank you, Sarah Bestwill, for the badge. Thank you, Sophia K. Davis for purchasing a badge. Thank you, Natasha, for purchasing a badge. And thank you, Jandel Crutch, for purchasing badges this live. Now, let me come back up here and see which of these good comments I missed. <laughs> uh, I missed a lot. Hey, Sarah from the Mixed Bloom Room. Okay. So, Overcast in Italy. Lucid Low says, I don't even watch Queen Sugar because of that. I saw the series art and I was, it was a no for me automatically. Yeah, I stopped watching Queen Sugar too for various reasons. Um, Jendelle Crutch says, yes. Um, Lucid Low says, JC doesn't even value his own flesh and blood. Well, <laughs> um, Elevated Conjure says, this portrayal is a betrayal. Yeah, it, and it, it's a deep one too. I don't know, I, for me personally, this was like, I don't know what I said. Maybe I was maybe in a past life. I was stagecoach Mary's distant cousin or something because I don't know why this is like making me so angry. They all make me angry. But this one, I was like, mm -mm, nope, we're going to talk about this. Um, Jindale, right. Bi biracial folks can be darker. Uh, very bad. Right. Born into slavery. Uh, Sarah Bestwill says Netflix and the producers trying to make the character more palatable for the colorist masses. Yeah. And that's only a thing that they do for the women characters. That's the only, that's the only time they try to, you know, make someone more palatable. Right. Uh, thank you. The Lidster for purchasing a badge. Um, Black Nidal 6, 26.2 says, I am angry with you. Thank you for your passion. Keep pressing forward. Thank you. Yes. Collective anger. I think I'm Instagram skipped past some of my comments. Um, Sophia K. Davis says, that's disgraceful. It reminds me of the color chart they use for movies like Notorious, etc. Okay. Straight out of Compton, notorious colorism in Hollywood. So the Straight Out of Compton casting call, have y'all heard of that? Did y'all hear about that when that came out? How they 
the producers, black folks making movies now. I'm telling y'all, because people will try to tell you that colorism only happens in Hollywood when white people make the movies. Not the case. Our own people betray us all the time. So straight out of the Compton, they hired a casting agency. The casting agency said, oh, we want A-girls. And they described A-girls as being light-skinned with naturally long hair. And B-girls were also light-skinned, but they could have weaves and wigs. And then, like, the C and the D-girls could be, like, brown to dark brown, you know, less attractive, poor, right? And so they were literally ranking. Like, literally, the color hierarchy was explicitly stated in this, right? But again, the male roles, the men actors, actors and actors, actors did not have to subscribe or fall into that color hierarchy. And the black men making the film support that and condone that. And many of you might have heard Too Short recently came out exposing his colorist beliefs, right? And so, yes, like I'm having a really hard time with my brothers right now. <laughs> Not the ones watching this live or the ones who follow my page, but like, Again, of all my followers, only 10% of them are men and not all of that 10% are black men. So let me also add that. So black brothers, like y'all continue to betray us. And even if you're not actively spouting colorist things, you're staying silent when colorist things are happening and being said, which is just as much of a betrayal. Okay. Lucid Lowe says, why do black people have to be so inclusive all the time though? No other group has to acknowledge they're black or darker skinned people, but we have to be sensitive to everyone else's needs before our own. Yeah, that is an expectation. Just like any marginalized group is expected to consider the comfort or the value of more privileged people in general. Um, let's see. Yes, they bothered, like, it took effort and funds to do that. Lucid Lowe says, Zoe Zaldana was walking around saying she doesn't subscribe to race <laughs> and she doesn't know what it is. Then when she took that role, she started randomly claiming to be Haitian and proud to be black. <laughs> yeah, um, yep, very interesting. But again, Zoe Zaldana's ability to claim blackness is why... You know, I don't even look at the racial markers first. I look at the skin color first because anyone can claim blackness. But at the end of the day, if you don't look like me, you get to move through the world differently. You have more access, more opportunities moving through the world. And so, yeah, she can claim to be black, but colorism is the conversation we need to have, especially when we talk about the U.S. becoming minority white in a few decades, in a couple of decades, and majority people of color. And you mean to tell me we're not preparing ourselves to deal with colorism more directly and more explicitly? Like, we have to talk center. I'm centering colorism. I know people, the world disagrees, but that's just me. <laughs> Um, Ken Ken says, this just makes me sick to my stomach. Um, yeah. Sarah Bestwill says, dear white people and all Americans on Netflix are also rampant in colorism. Oh yeah. I wonder what the board of Netflix looks like. <laughs> yeah. The board of Netflix, 
But I'll also say, like, I don't know much about the dynamics in terms of Netflix acquiring shows or acquiring the rights to make a film. Um, but I think the buck stops with the producers of the film and the filmmakers and the directors. And so they might be getting paid from Netflix, but I don't think Netflix um, is taking away their creative control, right? But I don't know, maybe I'm thinking about it in the wrong way, right? Like I'm looking at the people who have con creative control over the final product. And so maybe Netflix does have creative control over the final product. I don't know. Y'all let me know, right? Is it just like, oh, Netflix is trying to build out their menu of films and TV shows? And so these are the people they're like, oh, make a TV show for us or make a movie for us. And then like the directors and writers and producers are the ones choosing the casting and choosing the narratives, right? I'm, I'm not 100%, but I, that's kind of how I'm approaching it right now. Um, Sophia K. Davis says, yes, I did. That was a mess. <laughs> Ice Cube's son admitted that he doesn't like black women in real life, only A girls. Ice Cube never addressed it. Excuse the question. He never did address it, especially perpetuated towards the women. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. So with the Saweetie thing, um, Souls and G-Spots is having a live where she's asking, you know, people are attacking Saweetie for being colorist and not holding too short accountable for his colorism, right? I think there is, um, there are instances where a black man is colorist and lighter skinned women accept that and they sort of bask in that. Other times they just stay silent on it. They don't correct it or address it. And I think that's what people are asking for. They're saying that just laughing at what he says, even if you're not agreeing to it, even if you're not explicitly condoning it, not correcting him, not saying that's wrong is complicity, but I don't know. Okay. So in terms of, you know, Hollywood more generally, more broadly, um, one, I'm not going to watch The Harder They Fall. <laughs> and I, it sounds like, it seems like to me, the, the filmmakers, like the, the whole cast and crew has sort of rallied together and said that they were not going to really address the issue. Although I think the casting director doubled down on his choice. The casting director justified hiring Zazie Bates. But I would really like to hear from her. Has anyone heard of her putting out a statement or saying anything? Because someone just wrote in my comments earlier today, like an hour ago, that light-skinned women have to can't expect to be included. They have to earn inclusion. And I, and I responded, I said, yes, um, a lot of light-skinned people want inclusion without accountability, without accountability. And for any woman, any light-skinned person, whether they're biracial or not, any lighter-skinned person who claims that they're often not seen as black enough or who claims that, you know, darker-skinned women don't accept them, it's because you want your inclusion without being accountable for the ways that you are privileged in society and the ways that you 
and a lot of people like you have perpetuated and condoned harm against us. And so when women like Zazie Beats take these roles, light-skinned people as a whole, biracial people as a whole, are viewed by us. You know, for me, I'm like, well, y'all don't have our backs. Zazie Beats did not have my back as a dark-skinned black woman. She doesn't have our backs, right? And so I don't want to ever hear her say, oh, well, they told me I wasn't black enough. Like, you don't have my back. Light-skinned people after light-skinned generation of generation of generation of y'all have not had our backs and unfortunately have explicitly thrown us to the curb, have explicitly thrown us under the bus, have explicitly excluded us, and not in terms of we don't want to eat with y'all at the cafeteria, but excluded us in terms of you can't even be admitted to this school to eat in the cafeteria in the first place. I know my Southern accent is coming out a little bit, so I hope y'all understood that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I don't, I don't think there's enough I don't think there's enough that an actress could do to really come back from that choice because this was really blatant. And I had never heard of Zazie Beats before this, but and I don't care what she play in in the future. I don't care. Like, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> and so people might look at me and say, oh, well, she's black too. No. Again, beyond the conversation of the one drop rule, beyond that conversation, because she could be a full, fully black African-American who looks like that. And yet it's still not good enough. Right. It's still erasure of people who look like stagecoach Mary. Um, but just three more points that I want to make about colorism in Hollywood. And that is. We have to look at who is on screen and who is not. We have to look at how much screen time they actually have. And then we have to look at what roles they are playing when they are on screen. Those three things. I'm going to unpack those in a bit, but I want to look at some of these comments. Um, Lucid Lowe's too short never said he didn't like dark-skinned women. He said he likes mixed women who we just said can be dark-skinned. We know what he meant, though, and so did Saweetie. Yeah, but that's the point I'm also making when I talk about, when I mention that mixed people can be dark skinned, I'm saying that because colorist people have associated light, light skin with being biracial. They have associated being biracial with being light skin and vice versa. And that's a very, very common myth and very common misconception that people have. And that is why mixed race identity is fetishized because people assume it's light skinned. If people really thought mixed race people could look like me, they would not equate mixed race with beauty, right? And so the equation of mixed race with cute, mixed babies with cute babies is the connection or the assumption that they're also going to be light skin with type two hair, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's the overlap. The reason why colorist people use mixed race as a proxy for light skin is because they assume those two things are the same. And yeah, and, and media portrayals of what mixed raceness is adds to that, right? Um, Chantel Alchemist says, I can't stand that was said. I can't stand that that was said. 
Um, thank you for the badge, Lucid Los, and for all your comments always. <laughs> you keep the converse, you keep the chat going. <laughs> um, Sarah Bestwell says they, they want inclusion without accountability. Same goes with wanting equality without acknowledgement and reparations. Yeah. Um, see, Chantel Alchemist says, down to the physical positioning of certain shots and who was in the physical center of the shot. It's that small, that minute. Chantel, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Can we talk about visual rhetoric for a second? I actually did a consultation with this company who wanted to um, do a campaign on colorism. And they were talking about images to include on their website and talking about the campaign, right? And I was like, listen, we don't need pictures where the dark-skinned person is in the back. Like, oh, look, there's a dark-skinned person in the picture, but they're, like, way off in the cut. <laughs> Even something like they'll have, like, a dark-skinned person and a light-skinned person, and, like, oh, look, it's unity amongst light people and dark-skinned people, but the light-skinned person is facing the camera directly, and the dark-skinned person is looking at the light-skinned person. You see there? So it's still, like, you're not perpetuating a narrative of equality and unity when the visual representation puts the darker skinned person in a subservient role. People were criticizing that image of Nicki Minaj's like stylist or whatever, um, sort of like bowing down to her. And that's a valid critique. People were, people try to say, oh, that's not what he meant. Or that's not what the photographer was trying to do. And so we also have to separate the intention of the filmmakers, although in this case, in the case of The Harder They Fall, they were intentionally colorist. Like, let's get, don't get it twisted. Oftentimes they are explicitly trying to be colorist. Oftentimes they are explicitly trying to be colorist. But even if they're not, even if it's a subconscious instance of colorism, what we have to look at is the outcome, the impact of that image, regardless of your intent, the impact of the image you put out perpetuates, perpetuates the narrative of dark-skinned black women being in subservient positions to light-skinned black women and everybody else, to be honest. <laughs> Dr. Webb could have just any language, always chooses facts. <laughs> This is from Shukia of They Are. I do not know how to say screen names, y'all. I apologize. Um, Lucid Low says facts. Latini dad is also fetishized because people assume Latinos are white, are primarily Spaniard and mixed race. Yes, Lucid Los. I remember doing the um, Olympics in Brazil. Some black guys were walking behind me. I was walking home and some black guys were walking behind me and they were like, yeah, I want a Brazilian looking chick. And I'm thinking, you know, you just ignorant enough not to know that there's no such thing. There is no such thing as a Brazilian looking chick <laughs> other than the, the false myths that you have been fed by the white supremacist media to think that all Brazilians look like Giselle. Is that that model Giselle or whatever? Wasn't she Brazilian? I don't know. I don't know these people. But the, just the lack of awareness, right? The ignorance for people to think um, that to associate Brazilianness, our Latini dad, our mixedness with this like pale skin and like green eyes. 
even, you know, I was sitting in the barbershop one time. I need to do a segment on how barbershops and beauty shops are not safe spaces for dark-skinned women with 4C hair. I need to do a live on that. Um, but I was sitting in the barbershop one time, and they had this woman on screen, racially ambiguous. I don't know if she was white or what, but um, my barber said, I wonder if that's all her real hair. I wonder if that's all their real hair, okay? And so mind you, my barber is married to a white woman, okay? Um, Dark-skinned black man, though, no, okay? And so this other black guy in the barbershop, he said, well, yeah, I bet that's her real hair because she looked kind of mixed or something. She looked mixed with something or whatever. So that's probably her real hair. <laughs> and then my barber and the other black barber, they was like, nah, I think that's tracks. I think that's fake hair, right? And so the other guy was like, wait, you mean like women of all shades and races and ethnicities wear fake hair too? <laughs> so the associations and the assumptions of what is black versus what is mixed versus what is white versus what is Latinx or Latina dad, they are all still based on like the privileging of those things is based on the assumption that those things are whiter. The privileging of mixed race, the privileging of Latinx identity, the privileging of um, whatever is based on the assumption that it looks white or that it is mixed with white. Yeah, and I, I even think, I'm not having a discussion about mixed race identity, but I know too, the default is to assume that people are mixed with white, right? There's a centering of white supremacy in there as well. When you say mixed, when I was growing up, it was always the assumption that it was like mixed with white. All right. Chantel says also, regardless of who is on the board and who are the producers, now that I am learning more about acting, I see so much colorism among other marginalization cloaked as inclusion. It makes me sick. Yeah. I, I, that's why I talk about monochromatic diversity a lot too. Monochromatic diversity because people will say, oh, look, we have a diverse cast. And I'm like, yeah, but they're all the same color. So try again. <laughs> try again. <laughs> um, Chantel says, but it was what the photographer was trying to do. Colorism is coded too. Yes, it was allowed to stratify systemically so long that now plays out subconsciously so much. It literally makes me sick. Yep. Yep. See, I read y'all's comments because uh, y'all just be on point. <laughs> I, I'm bringing people back on my lives again too, by the way. So as I read these like bomb comments and these insightful comments, just know that I got a couple of guests lined up for October and November. So hit me up if you want to come on and like say these things to folks as well. Um, D1 says, keep that man out of your head, sis. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you might be talking about the barbershop people. Um, only black hair salons are referred to as beauty shops. And I wonder why. <laughs> Bruh, I mean, like my entire life, going to the hair salon slash beauty shop slash barbershop, like as a dark-skinned girl with broad features and 4C hair, it was very clear to me that I was not the aesthetic that people were going for. 
I, let me do a separate segment on that. Let me let me get back to colorism in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm gonna do a separate segment on that. Uh, Shoki of the R says the association is if it's non-black, then it's good hair and light skin. They say that about Erica Mina all the time, and her hair is real too, but she also claimed to be Haitian when the wet was asking Sarah Sefari about her race. <laughs> I have no idea who Erica Mina is, y'all. Forgive my ignorance on that point. Um, but the but your overall message, Lucid Lose, is not lost on me. Um <laughs> Thank you, Pod Up Close and Comfortable for buying a badge. So I have seven, people have bought seven badges on the live so far today, y'all. Thank you. I need to talk about colorism in Hollywood every week. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, just Michael G says, I'm so grateful for your platform. I've been learning so much. Thank you. Dropped Jim said, not necessarily a colorism issue, but I'm not sure if I'm on board with the trend of other people who don't know our history being cast for specifically African-American historical narratives. Yeah, that's something I brought up um, a little bit earlier about Zazie Beetz being German and playing um, a woman who was not just African-American, but like an African-American who was born into slavery. Um, and I know that they had slavery in other countries as well. Okay, that's true. Um, but the... I think the the experiences and the history and the context matters, but it's not just the egregiousness is not just that they don't know our history or that they, they as individuals do not experience our history. It's also like in America, what American white supremacy does is it says like, y'all have to stay in your place as African-Americans, right? African-Americans, they are still mad that we're not in slavery anymore. And so I also think that the white supremacy of America wants to limit the success and the reach and the sort of um, global rise or uplift that is accessible to people elsewhere. And so there's this sort of anti-African-American sentiment that crosses, that intersects with anti-Black sentiment. Um, and it's almost like African-Americanness, like Black Americanness is dangerous, is lazy, is less than other forms of blackness, other ethnic groups within the diaspora. But yeah, that's not exactly related to colorism, but all these things intersect, right? Like colorism doesn't exist in a vacuum. So it is being impacted by these things. For example, that's why you see um, the woman who played in Queen and Slim and the woman and the man who played in Queen and Slim. And you see um, Cynthia Erivo who played um, Harriet Tubman, right? Like those are all darker skin actresses. And so I loved seeing dark skin actresses on screen, but it is important to know that that intersection is that there is a certain level of um, acceptance in white America to black people who are foreign black people if that makes sense. That, that's layered, um, but yeah. 
I understand where you're coming from. Uh, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, hold on. Thank you for the badge, just Michael G. Thank you for the badge, admire, admira. Um, Court Nico, thank you for the badge as well. Like y'all are clutch. I am so grateful. So let me uh, wrap up here. I've been chatting and mostly just been talking in the comments, but I do wanna go back to those three points I made about colorism in Hollywood beyond just this one specific film. Um, dropped, dropped Jim said not necessarily, oh, I already read that, okay. Black Knight 06, 26.2 says, I am a black father with a black dark-skinned daughter that wears her hair natural and I use my IG page to speak out against colorism. Thank you. Thank you for being here and sharing that. That is so important. And it is so necessary for black fathers not to be oblivious or not to, you know, because it doesn't affect men as much. It could be very easy to just kind of ignore the fact that this is happening and that it probably 90% chance is impacting your dark skinned daughters, right? So yes, thank you. All right, Lucid Lowe says, I view, I view anti-African-Americanism as ethnocentrism. That is one of the biggest issues within the minority community, in my opinion. Yeah, I like your perspective on that. Okay, so to, in closing for this week, thank you all for taking me on very productive tangents, as you always do, related and relevant. Um, but in terms of the topic of colorism in Hollywood movies, the first thing we notice is who is in the movie in the first place. And so for anyone who questions, who wonders, like, is this colorism? I don't know. If there are no dark-skinned people in the movie, that's an example of colorism. Like, your first clue, your first red flag that this movie is colorist is that they don't even have dark-skinned women. And I'm going to, I'm focusing women here, women. <laughs> Whether they're trans women, cis women, whatever, women, dark-skinned women not being in movies is a thing, is a thing, okay? Boy, if we look at how many movies have a dark-skinned man but don't have a dark-skinned woman, I see it all the time. And I'm telling you, I had somebody, when I made my post about all the men are dark, all the women are light, like somebody commented later and was like, ever since you posted this, I've been seeing it everywhere. And that's what I want. That's what I want. I want y'all to start seeing colorism everywhere because I feel that way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. <laughs> Haley Joe Osmond, I see dead people and I can't stop it. That's how I feel about colorism, okay? <laughs> so I want y'all to be right along there with me. Um, but the second thing is how much screen time do they have, right? These are very basic, tangible things you can look at. I've had people say, oh, well, look, they had a, they had a dark-skinned woman in that one scene. I'm like, that one scene? Really? That one scene? Still colorism, <laughs> okay? Still color. If you get five minutes of screen time in a movie that's 90 minutes or 120 minutes long, that's not a substantive role. That does not count as anti-colorism, okay? It's still colorist. Five minutes on screen is this far off from not being on screen at all. And I say this all the time when I talk about my media strike back in January, not media strike, media diet or whatever I was doing fast, is that it's not just the quantity of roles, it's also the quality of the role, okay? So let's say they did cast a dark-skinned actress. And let's say they have a pretty significant part. Let's say they have a lot of screen time. 
Here are some questions to ask yourself. One, are the dark-skinned actresses playing the lead character or are they merely a supporting character? Two, are the dark-skinned actresses and characters reinforcing negative stereotypes? You can discern for yourself what a negative stereotype might be. Three, are they purely there for comic relief? Are the dark-skinned actresses purely there for comic relief? Four, are they playing the antagonist? Are the dark-skinned actresses playing the villain? Especially towards a light-skinned actress. I've seen movies recently where the, um, the other woman, a man, a black man, a dark-skinned black man is married to a lighter-skinned woman and his problematic mistress is the dark-skinned woman or his problematic ex-wife is the dark-skinned woman. So again, we might be in the movie. That's only the first step. The second step is what kind of narrative are we being portrayed as? Um, another question, I think I'm on number five, I don't know. <laughs> Do they have viable romantic interests? Now I know people push back when you talk about romantic interests, but it's a thing, okay? Another question. Is their purpose in the movie merely to serve other people or to save other people? On my personal Facebook page, I asked the question, how many movies have you seen where someone is risking their life and putting it all on the line to save or rescue a dark-skinned black woman? And people were like, huh, I've never seen a movie where a man or a woman or a community is rallying together to say, oh, we got to go rescue this little dark-skinned black girl from the treacheries of whatever, okay? And the first time that I got angry about this was when Denzel Washington made that movie where he was literally risking his life, fighting the mafia or whatever to save a little blonde-haired white girl. And I remember watching that movie. I was at the movie theater with somebody, I don't know. And saying, why are, it's the narrative. One, that little white girls with blonde hair deserve to be saved, deserve to be rescued, are the most vulnerable. Perpetuating the narrative that as a black man, we need you to come save us, right? You will, I have never seen a movie where somebody's like, jumping off of buildings and like throwing bombs out of the window and getting shot up to save a black girl or woman, much less a dark skinned one. Okay. Let's be honest. They're not even saving the light skinned girls. <laughs> so they sure ain't saving the dark skinned ones with 4C hair. Okay. Um, but very often black women will be portrayed in movies as sacrificing to save other people. Dark-skinned black actresses will be cast in roles where they uplift their troubled son. Dark-skinned black women will be placed in roles where we are the champion best friend for the white writer who's writing her novel, right? And so it's like black women, especially dark-skinned black women, when we're in films, we're either saving ourselves, we have to save ourselves, or we're saving everybody else, okay? Um, another, ooh. Can y'all, can y'all see me? Okay. I just got a low battery warning. So that's my cue to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> thank y'all for 
um, condoning my silliness sometimes. Um, oh, this is a big one. Are they allowed a happy ending? Again, because sometimes I see movies where I'm like, yes, there's a dark-skinned black woman in the lead role. And then like she has the most tragic ending, i.e. Queen and Slim. I was like, yo, this like visually speaking, like yes, you know, the whole African-American thing. But visually speaking, that was like beautiful, right? Like beautiful representation. But then she gets shot up at the end, right? Like she is murdered at the end. She's not allowed a happy ending as a dark-skinned black woman, right? Okay, another question. Are they complex characters with an interesting story arc? Another question. Do they get a lot of close-ups? So Chantel, this goes back to your point about the shots, right? And let me center my own face in the camera right now as I'm talking about this. <laughs> Y'all gonna see some dark-skinned, big-nosed, kinky-haired faces today, okay? Um, but this goes back to your point about camera angles, lighting, all of that. Do they get close-ups that clearly show their full face? And if so, how often? We're talking about the dark-skinned women in the movies. How often do they get close-ups that show their face as they're speaking? It's the little things, y'all, I'm telling y'all. And actually, I remember this became important to me because one of my grad school colleagues did a film analysis of villains in movies versus superheroes in movies or versus like the protagonist in movies. And so her study was about how the more you see a person's face on screen, the more empathetic you are to that character, right? And so that's just like neuroscience, all that stuff, right? And so the characters that people had the most empathy for and that the characters that people were most sympathetic towards were the ones who had the most screen time and that showed close-ups of their facial expressions, right? So literally humanizing. You can literally humanize people simply by showing a close-up of them smiling, of them smirking, of them rolling their eyes, of them laughing, right? Um, and then the last question, there are many more. I have to go back and read your comments. Um, is their hair, makeup, and wardrobe well style, styled, right? And in some instances, you can tell like, oh, they didn't even try to give her great styling as a dark-skinned actress. Like they focused on whoever else in the film and this dark-skinned actress kind of, they almost seem like, did they make her bring her own wardrobe from home, right? Like they don't even try sometimes to make you look good on camera. Um, so that's like, Colorism in Hollywood 101. For my folks who say, like when I talk about it, they say, oh, I didn't even notice that. Like I, did, I didn't even re record that being a moment of colorism. Like those are some questions you can ask yourself as you're watching TV. And this is important, y'all. Let me read this quote by Malcolm X because Malcolm X is my soulmate, all right? <laughs> but he talks about the importance of media. And also Roland Martin talked about this too in the last speech about how People think media is just entertainment. Like, please, please, please get that out of your head. If you're thinking, oh, it's just a movie. Oh, it's just entertainment. Like one, it's not, it's propaganda. It is social conditioning. But two, like the literal science behind the sort of hypnotic effect of watching TV, the like actual like TV waves and radio waves, right? that is conditioning but even then you're more likely to be conditioned when your guard is down 
if you are not actively thinking critically, if you are not actively analyzing what you're looking at, you're that much more susceptible to be brainwashed. And so entertainment is actually the most effective form of brainwashing. Anyway, Malcolm X said in his 1968 speech, or 1965 speech, sorry, um, this is a science that's called image making. They hold you in check through the science of imagery. They even make you look down upon yourself by giving you a bad image of yourself. Some of our own black people have eaten this image themselves and just digested it until they themselves don't want to live in the black community. They don't want to be around black people themselves. It's imagery. They use their ability to create images and then they use these images that they've created to mislead the people, okay? So we're not just mad for nothing. Media, magazines, um, photographs, radio, there has not been any form of media more effective in brainwashing people than movies and TV. Billboards, music, sound like auditory music, they all play a part, but there's nothing more effective in social conditioning than movies and TV shows. And I'm gonna do a, another one on TV shows as well. So those are my final comments for now. Um, if you have to go, you can leave now. I'm going to just close out by reading the comments that people left as I was talking. So if you want to stay for those comments and see how I respond, please do. Um, but just know that I've, I'm pretty much done with my, the bulk of what I wanted to share ahead of time. Um, Ooh, I missed a lot. A Time to Kill. That was the Denzel movie. Thank you. Um, that movie, Acrimony, Light Skin, Save Your Wife, and Bitter, Dark Skin X. Yeah. Um, Court Nico, Viable Romantic Interest. Yeah. The Magic Negro, Saving the White People. Um, even a program like Watchmen, for me, was problematic because the entire show was cop-aganda. Ah, yes, Chantel. Cop-aganda. See, that's a very clever phrase. That needs to go, that needs to catch on. <laughs> um, Sophie K. Davis says, when Jodie Turner played without remorse with Michael B. Jordan, she wasn't promoted as much. Didn't even know she was in it. Yeah, I did not know either. Sophia K. Davis, this is literally my first time hearing that. Um, Shinto Alchemist says, yes, it's extraordinarily minute and down to the lines the character gets to say are not where they are physically positioned, what their character is playing in the plot. It's all su submitting these narratives to us. Uh, Lucid Lowe says dark-skinned actresses are the lead character when it's a sad movie like Precious. That's it, that's all. Yes, okay, yes. <laughs> um, especially short periods of time in the movies, yeah. Especially if you're playing a service worker, Lucid Lowe says, I quit watching black movies a long time ago because it is everywhere. Black women are there, but, but true manner in it, which they are used is to perpetuate negative black stereotypes. Chantel Ackerman says, yes, the literal measure is not seeing dark-skinned femmes specifically. My entire life I've seen this. <laughs> Ty Hal 86 says always a dark skinned man and Lily white slash light slash bright woman always. 
mm-hmm. in the heights. <laughs> Love your earrings and content. Thank you, Obsidian underscore. Yeah. And then I have some other comments to get to. Um, Tyler Perry has entered the chat. <laughs> oh, I thought she was. Oh, okay. I see the sarcasm there. I was like, where's Tyler Perry at? Did I make him mad? <laughs> Shanta Alchemist says even a program like, oh yeah, I said that. Um, a time to kill. Jenna, of course, as I was saying the same about Law and Order SVU, where are the dark-skinned victims of, of rape? Be, black men are too busy boycotting movies about homosexuality, though. <laughs> Lucid loves the shade. The shade. <laughs> I love it. Latanya Armore, thank you for buying a badge. Y'all. I mean, I already love y'all, but then... Y'all like give me tangible support too. And I'm just like, I can't. <laughs> uh, OMG watched that the other day. What was the plot of A Time to Kill? Um, oh, A Time to Kill. Yeah, I think that might be one example when um, a person fought for a dark-skinned person, dark-skinned child. Uh, I think that might be a good example. I'm also thinking about the amount of screen time she had, though. Um, but even, yeah, I don't know. That, that's tough because of the brutalization of her that had to happen first. Uh, Lucid Los replying to Janelle Crutch, you are so right. That is one of my favorite shows. When, are, when there are black people, they are usually dark-skinned and they are prostitutes. Sophia K. Davis says, it was so odd. And the Bollywood version was Indian actors, mostly set in Thailand, I believe. Not sure what reference that is. Oh yeah, the degradation of it. Jody and David. <laughs> Chantel says she has to go, but thank you for hosting this space because I love acting, but I know I'll have to fight in order to pave my own way. Yeah, I mean, like if y'all keep buying these badges, we might be able to open up our own studio company, our own production company, and our own TV channel. That's like a fantasy I have had is to like, you know how Oprah Winfrey had her own network? Like I want my own everything to be able to just make and cast and hire all the dark-skinned women. Because when we talk about the dark-skinned women who have visibility in Hollywood, one other thing I say, and this is again, could be saved for another live, is that they are not making children's content. And so I think about black girls, dark-skinned black girls. Like when I was growing up, I wasn't watching movies like Queen and Slim. I wasn't going to watch Queen Sugar. I was watching, you know, things made for children. And so in the arena of children's media, the colorism is even worse. Like we don't have Lupita's and Viola Davis's and um, Whoopi Goldberg's, you know, and children's media. And so I want to do, I just want to, that's my fantasy. Y'all help me attract it. Like y'all help me manifest <laughs> a TV, a studio network or something so we can make these things and get them out to people who need to see them. Uh, Obsidian says it's definitely programming and indoctrination. Um...
it's real life psychological warfare, Tai Hao 86. Um, EOS 20, the close ups. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Yeah, I hear a lot of things that people aren't applying to colorism that I obviously apply to colorism. So like I lo I'm so grateful that I sat in class and heard my, you know, colleague do a presentation on that cuz I was like, yo, like how many times do I see like the face, the close up of a face of someone who looks like me? It might be get a side view. <laughs> might be off in the in like a group shot. It's a lot. The new Candyman is full of messages. <laughs> Jasmine, yeah, superhero movies. Um, not to mention all the roles meant for dark-skinned women who lost women take like Nina Simone. Yeah, exactly. That's what prompted this was The Harder They Fall and Stagecoach Mary being the... It, if a colorist person needed an excuse to cast a dark-skinned person, like this was their excuse. This was your excuse. Like, if you try to say, oh, well, we can't cast dark-skinned women for whatever, whatever, like, you had an excuse to do the right thing, right? <laughs> because the person you're betraying is dark-skinned and they still didn't do it. All right, y'all, let me wrap up. I think I got through all my comments. Um, oh, Black Nettle 626.2 says the remake of the TV program The Wonder Years is cast with dark-skinned African-Americans may be a first. So I'll have to do another follow-up on TV because when we talk about those viable romantic interests, colorism, colorism. So I will say I love that the mom and the dad are both dark-skinned. I love that the mom and dad and the Wonder Years are a dark-skinned couple. But there's something about, and I've been thinking about this with the Wonder Years a lot, because in the original Wonder Years, the sort of romanticization of that character, Winnie, the girl Winnie, the white girl that he was in love with for all those years, like that dynamic in a movie or a TV show conditions us, teaches us who to be enamored with. And so whoever the protagonist is enamored with teaches the audience, is conditioning the audience who they should also be enamored with. And so for the lead character, the protagonist to be enamored with, probably the only lighter skinned person in the whole TV show with like straighter hair, like a much, much looser curl pattern is also a narrative, right? Um, because how many times have we seen movies with an all white cast? How many times have we seen movies with an all light skinned cast? And so they could have, they could have hired one more dark skinned actress for that role as well. But there's something about um, not people not being able to imagine a black boy being enamored with a dark skinned black girl. And so who should play this role? Who should play the role of being this sort of like um, pedestaled queen of the classroom or the school campus? It can't be a girl who looks just like him. It can't be a girl who looks like his mom. So I got my, I, ugh, ugh. they were so, they were, they were close. They tried to get close. I was like, ooh, dark skin, dark skin, dark skin. And then I saw clips and previews of those scenes and I was like, there it is. There it is. We can't escape the colorism. Even when people think they doing right, like it always creeps up. It always seeps up somewhere.
<laughs> and now, as I say, I wrap up, I just opened up another can of worms. <laughs> um, power is a master at casting non-black love interests. Everyone is pretending this isn't the case. I know, Lucy Lose, and that's why I never watch it. I never watch power. And someone said that even the dark-skinned love interests, like even their portrayal is sort of demeaning. And it's kind of dehumanizing the way they portray the dark-skinned women who are love interests. They, I haven't seen it, so I'm going based on people's analysis. But yeah. Um, Colorist says there will be a new movie coming out with three dark-skinned women movie stars. Viola, Lupita, and the James Bond lady. It's called The Woman King. Okay, thank you, Colorist. I'm going to look out for that. You said I'm already nervous. <laughs> I know. It's like, because we're so... Like, it's so rare that we can just get a movie. You know what I mean? And so, like, like even my example with The Wonder Years, it's, like, constantly disappointed by something, right? And, again, I'm hypervigilant. I don't know. Maybe sometimes it just, if I could just turn it off and just be like, it would be an otherwise decent movie if I could just turn off my colorism lens. If I could just, like, get rid of my colorism filter. Like I might be able to enjoy more movies. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. All right. I'm gone. I'm out. No more. I quit for this week. I'll be back next week though. Love y'all so much. Thank you for sticking in there with me. Thank you for hanging in there with me to the end. I love how there are still 16 people watching, even as I'm saying goodbye. <laughs> Just love y'all so much. Um, I do not take for granted that you spend time with me on these lives or watching the recording. And I wish I could meet all of you in person and hug you if you do hugs. If you don't do hugs, we can wave or do a handshake, whatever. Um, but just know that I'm, that's, you know, the level of respect that I have for you is, is really high. So thank you. Bye. <laughs> Lucy Lowe says you should stay. <laughs> I know I gotta do somebody said I should do like a zoom meeting I should do like an open zoom meeting where like anyone who wants to just like hang out not me teaching but like just listening and like having a conversation yeah and I was talking about doing a world tour where I just go visit y'all and all of y'all's hometowns and like have coffee with y'all <laughs> maybe maybe someday <laughs> all right bye see y'all next week <laughs> oh, I do a podcast, but it's it's the same as this. My podcast is just the audio recording of what I'm saying now, so it's not anything different. All right. Bye. <laughs>